Have you ever felt a little overwhelmed by fear? Have you ever um, felt, how can I get rid of and deal with these nagging doubts? Um, maybe, maybe you're concerned about your lack of understanding. I don't know what I ought to know. I don't believe as I ought to believe. Maybe you are experiencing persistent failures, inconsistencies in the way you've lived your life, inability to do good, or to at least do the things that you feel you ought to or feel called to do. Maybe a hard heart towards God, toward other people, lack of faith. If so, you're in good company. Because we've all felt those things. We've all experienced some of those things. And those who took Jesus' message and the message about Jesus to the world and turned it upside down experienced the exact same things. We're starting a series today in the Gospel of Mark. You saw a, a little video there a moment ago. Um, hopefully that kind of maybe uh, whet your appetite for what's to come. Um, a little visual summary of, of what this Gospel is all about. Uh, the, the title of the series is uh, that I've... That I've uh, titled it is The Servant King. What I want us to look at over the next um, weeks and months is Jesus presented to us as our King who came to suffer for us. And as we do that, we are going to kind of maybe put our feet in the sandals of the disciples, of those, of those first followers, of the people who were able to observe him, to, to see what he did and to hear the things that he said and to identify with them to kind of uh, take a cue from the way they responded to Jesus. I want us to just immerse ourselves in this gospel for the next several, many months and find ourselves changed by the good news of Jesus as we do so. Mark uh, this, this gospel was written to a people who were, uh, the, the best, uh, the best, uh, the best uh, evidence that we have is that this was written to a people and among a people who were experiencing persecution. They were experiencing suffering. Uh, in, in some cases, the suffering was enormous, great. Uh, catastrophic for their lives. And the gospel is written to people who are wondering, uh, is this what the Christian life is all about? Uh, aren't we, are, don't, we, don't we worship and serve the king? And the gospel is written to say, yes, we serve a king. But he's not like any king you've seen on this earth. He's a king who, who 
was crowned in his suffering. And he acquired his throne through his death. Look with me at the very beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I bet by the end of the day, you will have a verse of the Bible memorized. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Look with me at this. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, this might be, this, this is probably the message, um, it's probably kind of a record or a once in a life, maybe a once in a lifetime a message for me. Um, this message is based on the fewest words <laughs> of any passage or text of scripture that I've preached on. It's just a handful of words. In fact, um, in the original language, there are even less words than what we see in our English translations, most of them. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so I just want, to, I, I want us to ponder that heading. That's, it's basically the heading, um, not quite a, the title of the book that we're going to be studying, um, but it's, it, it's, it's essentially uh, Mark's way of signaling, uh, this is what we're going to be looking at. This is, this is what this gospel is all about. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so, let's consider a few things. Consider what gospel means. Any thoughts? I heard, I, I saw somebody mouthing it, good news. Gospel means good news, right? Well, a couple of things. To, uh, we have, in our Bibles, the New Testament begins with four books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? And we call those the gospels. That's actually a title that we give to those books of the Bible. So first of all, the gospel is a genre of biblical literature. It is a type of Bible. Gospel is a genre. It's got all kinds of things. As we study, um, as we read through um, this gospel, and we take it bit by bit, piece by piece, you're going to notice some things. You notice a lot of stories. We call those narrative we're going to see a lot of stories about Jesus. And then he's going to um, say a lot of things. He's going to um, speak in what we're going to call, uh, the term is parables. He's going to speak in parables. We, we gotta, we're, as we read this gospel, we're going to see these parables. We're going to have to figure out, well, what do they mean? What was, what was Jesus getting at when he told these parables? And then he's going to teach a lot of other things too. So there's a lot of these didactic passages where, where Jesus is teaching to his people. And he's going to use a lot of different kinds of teaching methods. And one of them that he likes to use is wise sayings. If you've ever read the Proverbs, you're going to, you, you might have a, 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 an idea of what we might come across as we study the Gospel of Mark. Jesus uses wise sayings. Um, he uses parables. There's narrative. In a sense, um, this story is biography as well. Because it's on the life of Jesus. There are only two places, two places in the entire Gospel of Mark that the subject, the featured person in the story, is not Jesus himself. 
We'll look at one of them next week. And then we'll look at another one probably several weeks from now where the subject, the actual person of the story is not Jesus. This is all about Jesus, essentially. So it's also biography, but it's, it's all of those kinds of, of storytelling or kinds of writing all wrapped into one, making something new, this new genre of literature. Some people look back at, and, and as they studied these Gospels, are, what is this? It's kind of like a historical narrative, but it's not. It's kind of a collection of wise sayings and proverbs and wisdom literature, but it's, it's not. It's, it's like a biography, but it's not. It's, it's all of those things and more. It's a testimony, a witness to who Jesus was and is, to what he did and who he is for us. So we're going to look, we're going to see all of those things as we go through. But then there's the gospel, which is the good news. The gospel, which the word itself means good news. Consider this, um, consider this rather academic um, definition of gospel. You don't have to write this down. Um, but we include, in fact, this, this quote is included in our uh, membership materials. So every, everyone who's gone through the, the membership class will have this written down in their, in their, uh, in their notes, and you can see it. And this is, a, this is, this is a, a definition of gospel. The gospel is the historical narrative of the triune God orchestrating the reconciliation and redemption of a broken creation and fallen creatures. That's us from Satan, sin, and its effects to the Father and each other. In other words, re reconciliation, redemption to God the Father and to each other through the life, death, resurrection, and future return of the substitutionary Son by the power of the Spirit for God's glory and the church's joy. It's a long definition. Did you catch some of those things? If you read it two or three or four more times and maybe defined a few of those words, it would probably start to gel in your mind eventually. The gospel is a historical narrative. It's a, it's a historical event. Jesus came. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. And in the course of all of that, he promised he'd come back again. And so we anticipate his coming again. And Jesus did that because we are fallen. We are sinful. We talk about that every week in uh, Good News Club. We talk about sin. Because Good News Club is all about what? The gospel. Ah, good news. <laughs> That's why it's called Good News Club. We talk about sin. And we talk about its effects on our lives. And our need for a savior. That's why Jesus came. And he reconciled us to God. One of the parts of, part of the definition of sin is that it's anything that we think, uh, say, or do that breaks God's laws. And then there's another little phrase that add, it's added on. And makes God sad. Before you start to think that we're manipulating kids into saying the sinner's prayer so that they're not making God sad anymore, consider what sin does in our lives. What did it do in the garden? 
We don't see God crying and sad and, oh, I can't believe you did that. And God, I'm so offended by you. And, but what did it do? It separated us from God. Now we don't, have, we don't have that fellowship with God that we should have as His created beings. In a sense, that is one of the saddest things that, the saddest parts of the whole story. And it's true that we're separated from God, but through Jesus, His life, death, resurrection, and His future return, we have reconciliation with our Creator again. That's a big deal. All of that is wrapped up in this word right here. And, it, and it's a big deal for Mark, especially. Did you know that the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John never use the term gospel? That word doesn't, ex it doesn't appear in those particular gospels. It does appear four times in Matthew's gospel, which is really long, you know, 28 chapters. But in this, the shortest of the gospels, Mark uses that term seven times. It's a big deal. Good news meant something to his listeners. Good news was a big deal because this is, what, this is what a king would do. This is what a herald would do. He'd come in and he would announce, hey, there's good news. I'm announcing you good news. Victory over our enemies. Good news. There's a new king. He's coming. Good news. There's a new ruler. He's going to bring peace. Of course, all of those were temporary. The real true good news was Jesus. And so for Mark's uh, readers, his listeners, that meant something to them. And it means something to us. Good news. Not only just a, a genre in the Bible, but it's a message, a story about Jesus himself. Look at the phrases. Look at these, uh, a couple of things about Jesus. Because as we are... As we're studying Mark's gospel, I want you to pay attention to some things. Pay attention to what Jesus does. This is a gospel of action. This is a gospel where Jesus is on the move and he's doing things and he does it and he's going from here to there and he's constantly doing much more doing, much more action in this gospel than in some of the other gospels. Where in Mark you have these long sermons. You've got the Sermon on the Mount and you've got other um, long passages where he's just teaching, teaching, teaching. Mark takes time to write down what Jesus did. Pay attention to what Jesus did. And as we do that, pay attention to what that says about who he is. That's really important. Don't miss that because everything, all of the action going on here is not just for us to go, wow, Jesus did a lot of amazing things. Wow, he did this and he did that. Boy, I want him to do that in my life. That, that's good. That's good. But don't miss what Jesus is communicating to us about himself through his actions. And what, one of the things that he's communicating to us is that he is the Christ. In the e, uh, ESV, which I read to you, um, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In the video, we saw a slightly different translation, the Gospel about Jesus the Messiah. So we've got a couple of strange words. Christ 
and Messiah. Christ we all know because um, unfortunately it, it, it's prevalent in our culture and not necessarily in a good way. So we hear the term Jesus Christ a lot. People don't know what they're saying most of the time. And we don't know what we're saying most of the time either. Christ is not Jesus' last name, but it's a title. Christ is a title. And it's the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah, which is why some of our more modern translations are using, are kind of throwing in Messiah in key places in the New Testament, um, even though that's not necessarily the Greek word that it's translating. But to get the point across, Christ is Greek, Messiah is Hebrew. And what does it mean? It means anointed one, or the anointed one. In the Old Testament, here's, here are the people who were anointed for service to God. Prophets, priests, kings. Prophets, priests, and kings. They were all anointed, and there were ceremonies for, ceremonies for this, like with oil and things like that. They were all anointed, set apart, commissioned, if you will, or ordained for service to God in some specific way. Then, this idea of the anointed one grew in the minds and the hearts of Jews, of Israelites, and then later the Jewish people coming into the first century so that they anticipated a Messiah. And we saw a little bit in that video, one of the, one of the, big, the big themes for the Messiah, one of the most prevalent um, expectations for the Messiah was that he was going to come be a new king who was going to then defeat all of uh, Judea's enemies, all of the Jews' enemies. He was going to set them free. He was going to bring them out of this kind of new captivity, this new slavery like they were in Egypt, or new captivity like they were in Babylon and, and Assyria. That God was going to send this anointed one, this Messiah, this Christ. Now, there were a lot of different expectations of what that might look like. There were some who thought, well, we're going to have a a spiritual Messiah, or maybe not even a literal Messiah, but, but somehow the Messiah is going to, this Messiah movement or Messiah uh, ethos is going to, going to transform us. Some then believed it was an actual king, a, a great warrior. Some thought of him more as a teacher or a, as a wise man, that this Messiah was going to come and going to bring Oh, now we understand everything. Now all the answers are, are given to us. But the heart of this Messiah um, concept comes when God himself speaks to King David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord is speaking to King David and he's saying to him that you, David, are not the one who's going to build me a house of wood and stone, gold layered, in other words, a temple. But I am going to build you a house, meaning a family, a household, 
descendants. And then he says, I will establish the, the throne of your son, of your descendant. And in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, he says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. And then he goes on to say, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's the promise that the Lord, Yahweh, made to David. And the Israelites latched onto that. And Jews of the first century latched onto that. And they said, we're waiting for the son of David to come. Somehow, I don't know how, some people thought it was going to be this way. Others thought it would be this way. Others thought it would be this way. But they were all anticipating the Messiah, the Christ, to come. God was going to send him. He was going to be like a son to God. And God was going to be a father to him. He will be the Christ. He will come. Well, here's the thing about what we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark. He didn't come as they expected. He didn't come to overthrow Rome. Rome. He came, actually, and was tortured and killed by Rome. He came to suffer. A key verse, a key verse in this entire gospel is chapter 10, verse 45. If there's one verse that I would encourage you, aside from chapter 1, verse 1, but another verse that I would encourage you to memorize and, and think about as you're meditating on and studying through and reading through this gospel, it's Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's why He came. He didn't came, didn't come to overthrow. He didn't come to conquer Rome. He came to serve His disciples. He came to serve the Jewish people. He came to serve Gentiles. He came to serve us. Give His life as a ransom for us. That is the Messiah that we see revealed to us in this gospel. Not only is He called the Christ, but He's called the Son of God. You heard that, right? You heard that in 2 Samuel 7.14. I will be to Him a Father. He will be to me a Son. And then in Psalm 2, we heard that read earlier. Today, I have begotten you. That was a, that's a royal psalm, by the way. Psalm 2. It's a song, it was a royal psalm. In other words, it was a song or a poem that the people recited or sang together at the, at the coronation of a new king. Because they saw the king, not in, not in, the, not in the divine sense of Christendom, not in the, Char, the, the, the sense of Charlemagne and, and various other kings in history, not, in, not as, the, not as the, the, the Caesars of Rome that claimed the title of, of Lord, claimed divinity, but they saw in the king the sonship. 
that, came, that was descended from David. They had no idea. I don't believe they had any idea what that was actually foretelling. The greater son, the greater king, that this was going to be the son of God in the flesh. That God would come in the flesh. The Son of God, this term, speaks of the uniqueness of Jesus' relationship to God the Father. First of all, um, a, a, you know, aside from any other um, deeper meaning, nobody would claim to be the Son of God. Nobody would answer to that. Nobody would affirm that. When being accused by the priests, tell us clearly and plainly, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? See, the priest wouldn't even say God's name. The Son of the Blessed One. And Jesus says, yes. Yes. Yes, I am. I am that one. No one could claim that. No one could claim the divine authority that Jesus had. One commentator um, said, uh, pointed out, this is, I believe it was, it was uh, uh, Craig Blomberg, um, so just, you know, just name drop you know, randomly, and if you write that name down, you can find him. New Testament scholar commenting on this, this sonship of God, this... Uh, the, the divine aspect of who Jesus is revealed in Gos Mark's gospel. He was sent by God. He acts for God. He speaks on behalf of God. And then he's finally vindicated by God. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son who didn't assert his authority by ruling over, but by giving his life. If you are curious about this at some point, Google the servant songs, servant songs of Isaiah. Servant songs of Isaiah. You'll find four in the books of Isaiah, or the book of Isaiah, excuse me. That was not, that was, that was not meant to be some kind of a, you know, Historical, critical, um, uh, anyway, never mind. The book of Isaiah, you'll find about four of those servant songs. And, and some argue maybe there's a fifth. And Isaiah 53 is one of those. The, the song, the, the, the words of that, of that uh, servant song should sound familiar. Here was, here was in Isaiah the personification, the, the, a, a description, really, of the Messiah, the Son of God, and what He would be. In Isaiah chapter 53, just, just to give you a, 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 few, uh, a few clips from this, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. That's just a little, 
little taste of that particular chapter, that particular servant song where the Son of God, Jesus, is the Son of God, but He comes not as everyone expected Him, but He comes to give His life. So, here's a night, here's... Here's a kind of a, a summary, an idea of, of what this gospel is all about. It's, it's about both why Jesus is explaining why throughout and also how the Son of God came to die. The, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, if you were to read, if, I, if, you, if you read that and you don't know anything else that's coming, you're thinking, this is going to be great. Holy cow! I don't know what Christ means, but it sounds pretty important. And, and the Son of God? Are you kidding me? That's got to be a big deal. And then you read, and you get halfway through, but you don't even get halfway through the, through the gospel. Less than halfway through, you hear him say, hey, by the way, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And then he says it again. And then he says it a third time. And then... Six chapters of this gospel is devoted to his final week of life. And there he is, dying on a cross. Dying as a ransom for many. Substituting his life for ours. Redeeming us out of sin. Out of the slavery, the bondage that we are in because of our fallenness. That's what the gospel is all about. How Jesus became king by suffering for us. So I'll repeat, as we study this gospel, look at the things Jesus does. See what he does and consider what that says about who he is. It's all important. And then, as you do that, Pay close attention to how people responded to him. How did the disciples respond? How did the crowds respond? How did evil spirits respond to who Jesus was and what he did? How did the religious authorities and, and other leaders respond? How did Gentiles, outsiders or Romans, both powerful and ordinary. How did those people respond to who Jesus was and what he was doing? Take some of your cues from them. Also, be comforted. <laughs> be comforted. Do you ever feel like you've got nagging doubts, crippling fears? living inconsistently, lacking faith, lacking understanding, persistent failures, hard hearts. We're going to see that in this gospel. But I want to point out something, though. Something really kind of, I think, a big deal about discipleship. It's kind of a light bulb for me that went on um, this week as I was reading and studying Following Jesus, following Jesus is far more important than understanding him. You may not understand much 
You may, you may, you, you, you may be trying to find the answers, trying to figure some things out. Try, how can Jesus be fully God and fully man, or truly God and truly man, to split hairs? How can Jesus be that? I don't understand. Don't let that keep you from following him. And another thing. Being with Jesus, spending time with Him, is far more important than having life figured out. Knowing what to do. Knowing how to live. You come to Him. Boy, the people who spent time with Jesus, they didn't have, they didn't have their lives figured out. In fact, they had some pretty glaring problems. But they knew Jesus was their Messiah. That Jesus was worth being with. Worth following. I want to encourage you in that. Don't give up on following Jesus because you don't have it all figured out. Don't give up on spending time with Jesus because you're problems, your sins, your failures are so numerous. Don't let that keep you from spending time with your Messiah. We build our faith. Faith is a big deal in this. But we build our faith. We may think it's small. We may think it's insignificant. At times, we, just like the disciples, will rightly be Rebuked by Jesus. Oh, you of little faith. Didn't you, didn't you know that I'd be working? Don't you know who I am? And our faith seems so small. But the beauty of this gospel is that it takes people who are broken and, and messed up and confused and they really lack faith. They have nothing to offer. But by following Jesus and spending time with Him, they are transformed into somebody who's useful for God and His service. That's a beautiful thing. Consider, very briefly, just, just the, the author of this gospel. Mark. Who's Mark? He's not one of the disciples. He doesn't come in the list. Who, who is this guy who wrote this? Matthew was a disciple. Uh, John was a disciple. Who's Mark? Mark appears in the story in the book of Acts. His name's John Mark. And he's a young man. He's one of the disciples. His, um, his mother has a very large house. And the disciples hang out at that house in a large upper room um, where they can where they can gather together and pray and worship. And, and John Mark is excited to be a part of that world. And he's learning about Jesus. And, and he's not one who was following Jesus during his earthly ministry, but he's hearing the testimony. He's hearing the good news, the gospel. And, and he's like, this is amazing. And then when, when men get sent out to, to go on mission and and, and spread the gospel through the known world, well, John Mark gets swept up in that. John Mark, come with us. You can be one of our apprentices. Wouldn't that be great? One of our, one of our ministry interns. 
And so he gets wrapped up in that and he gets sent off and uh, gets to the second destination and for some reason he goes home. Now the writer of the writer of Acts doesn't tell us why. He just he departed. He left them and he returned home. Maybe he was sick. Maybe he was homesick. Maybe he was like this is more than I thought it would be. I don't feel like I'm ready for this. Or maybe he was like, I've got other things I'd rather be doing. Maybe he lacked faith. Maybe he lacked maturity. Maybe he lacked stamina and perseverance. Something caused him to go back. And then later on, his name shows up again. These same the same missionary duo, duo, they want to go back out. They want to go on another, they want to go tour around and they want to go visit those churches again and find more cities and more places to spread the gospel and start more churches. And, and one of them says, hey, let's bring John Mark with us. And the other guy says, no, I will not bring a quitter with me on the next journey. Well, that's the last time we hear of John Mark. The, the team divides. You see that in, in Acts chapter 15. The team divides and one of them takes John Mark and we don't hear from him again in, in the book of Acts. And the other takes another partner and they go off and they continue to spread the gospel and we see and hear more amazing, wonderful things that happen in that ministry. But then, but then you read the Apostle Paul's writings, and you see him mention a young man that he refused to take with him on his journeys. And in the book of Colossians and Philemon and 2 Timothy, he says, Hey, Mark, he's my man. Make sure you bring him with you when you come visit me, because he's useful to me. Or, Mark is with me right now and he is sending greetings because he's my companion. He is, he is my partner in the gospel now. What happened? We don't have all the story. I wish there was a story. I wish we had the story written down. How God matured him up. How God turned him around and how God made him useful for the gospel. But the man, Paul, who said, I don't want to take him with me. He's a quitter turns around and has glowing things to say about this man. In the very last letter, the very last letter he ever wrote, he says, Mark, of all the people I want you to bring to visit me, bring Mark with me. Then we see Peter. Somehow, Peter and Mark got connected up. And Mark was a right-hand man to the Apostle Peter. Writing his, his letter, 1 Peter writing that from Rome where Peter would die and where Mark would sit down and write out this gospel based on, based on the preaching ministry of Peter. What does that tell us? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at work in the lives of people so that a, man, a young man like John Mark who didn't have much staying power, didn't have much endurance in the beginning, 
would continue in the gospel, would continue following Jesus, would seek him out, and God would use him to record this beautiful gospel that we have in our Bibles. People, that's what the gospel does. That's what I want us to... I want us to see Jesus. And I want us to be transformed by Him. I don't care if it takes us two years to go through this gospel and unearth everything we can find about Jesus and, and, and see His beauty in this gospel. Maybe like John Mark, some of us are feeling like <laughs> we've had our chances and we blew it. Tim Keller says, the gospel, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That is, that's true. And that's why, for us as a, that's why for us as a church, we want to see lives, families, communities transformed by the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we want to see. We're going to spend our time building our faith, gazing at Jesus over the next few months, studying Him, um, uh, adoring Him, being challenged, I guarantee you, that there will be times of discomfort and you will be squirming in your seats as I'm squirming in the pulpit, thinking that we've got something figured out and Jesus is here to say, to tell us, no, you need, you need to repent. You need to change. You need to follow me. I've got something different for you. I think this gospel will correct some of our misunderstandings about who Jesus is. But this gospel will also build our faith as we study it together. So, are you ready for that? You ready to, to uh, gaze at Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in this gospel over the next... I'm not going to give you a timeline. It's going to be a few months. And it's going to be awesome. Let's do that together, shall we? Alright, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for thank you for the good news. And thank you for transforming us by, by this gospel that is so beautiful. God, um, as we study study your word, um, just I, I'm looking to the future, obviously, God, but like right now, this verse is, is powerful enough to change our hearts and to change who we are. Uh, God, I am, I'm excited about what tomorrow brings. I'm excited about how you're going to teach us over the next few weeks and months. But God, even today, just, just meditating on, dwelling on the gospel, who 
Jesus was, our, our Christ and, and the Son of God who came to suffer and die for us. Uh, the gospel which is, which is so much worse than, than we thought. We are so much more sinful than we ever believed. But God, we are so much more loved and accepted in Christ because of Him and just simply by faith than we ever dared to hope. God, that is true for us. Help us to follow you faithfully. Believe in you. Abide in you. Dwell with you. Be with you. And build our faith as we do so, God. We love you. We give you praise and we give you glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.